So welcome everybody to today's episode of the Independent Teacher Podcast. And I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Nikki Shaw. Nikki, welcome to today's show. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we're going to have a really, really interesting conversation today um, about some of the research that you've been doing in terms of the gender gap and in particular about the overconfidence of boys and, and men. But before we do that, could you just give our listeners a brief overview of your career and obviously your own research interests as well? Yeah, great. So I did a PhD in economics. Um, before that, I actually did a master's in education. So I was always really interested in kind of this intersection of um, education research, but from a very quantitative kind of using statistics and economic models to understand big kind of trends and phenomenon. Um, and so I did a PhD in economics at Oxford. Um, and after that, I wanted to stay in research. During that time, I worked on a lot of different issues about gender, um, also about non-cognitive skills. So I worked on things about um, maternal labor supply, um, childcare. So all kind of very related to education. I also worked on how people's, the, the people who you study within a classroom, so your peers affect your learning outcomes. So I was really interested in all of these kind of things coming together. And I ended up um, getting a postdoc position at UCL um, Institute of Education in a group of quantitative social scientists. So we're all quantitative. We all work on different aspects of education, labor market, kind of broad um, topics. And we're, yeah, I started working a lot with PISA data, um, which I can talk about a bit more and became really interested in further pursuing topics related to gender and socioeconomic inequality. So the past almost eight years, I've been at UCL working on these topics and teaching uh, undergraduates kind of similar things. Gosh, sounds very interesting. And there were lots of things there, you know, that, uh, you know, will, will uh, interest our listeners, but if we start looking at this idea about gender, now, um, some of the research that you've done, I believe, suggests that there's evidence to show um, that sometimes boys are more ambitious than girls when it comes to their plans about going to prestigious universities. And this is in the U UK, isn't it? Could you just talk about that? Yeah, so that was a study that um, I did using PISA data. So PISA, for listeners who might not be familiar with it, it's the Program for International Student Assessment. It's run by the OECD every three years. And every country um, gets to add a couple of questions to the background questionnaire that students do. So students basically do a test which covers math, uh, maths, English, um, in the case, obviously, if you're in an English-speaking country, and science, so literacy and science, um, and countries can add these additional questions. So in 2015, England decided to add some questions about university plans. So this, the pupils had done this, these tests, and then they're asked questions, you know, about their, their parents, their home life, and they're asked importantly, do they plan to apply to university? And if so, where are they planning to apply? And I think this is an interesting question because they're not just choosing from a drop-down menu. They actually have to type in the names of the universities to which they plan to apply. And they're 15, so they haven't done their GCSEs yet, um, but they're kind of, they're in that year. So the PISA tests were done kind of in November, and then basically six months later, most of these um, pupils are going to take GCSEs. Um, and so, you know, they should be kind of thinking about this. 15 is a pretty reasonable age to have some plans. Um, and what we find in that paper is that girls are five percentage points roughly less likely to say that they plan to apply to Oxbridge or to any Russell Group University. And that's even once you control for their prior attainment at, GC, at Key Stage 2, their performance on PISA, uh, the school they attend, their socioeconomic background. And I think that's a really stark finding. So we're basically saying that a boy and a girl at the same school 
with very similar or the same kind of sociodemographic background, the boy is still five percentage points more likely to say that he plans to apply to Oxbridge or Russell Group University. You know, I find that really interesting. Where is that coming from? They should have the same prior attainment. They should have the same kind of possibilities, but we still see that difference. What are the con- what are the consequences of overconfidence in men um, in terms of the job market? Because we've talked about it's there when they're 15 years old. So what then happens a little bit later on in life? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something, so I did a lot of research in another paper as well using PISA where we show that there is this kind of overconfidence. We have another another paper where we show that boys even overclaim knowledge. Um, and I became interested in kind of trying to understand, well, what are the consequences? So what, what does this all mean? Um, and so using uh, data on people born in the UK, uh, in Great Britain, actually, in 1970, we're able to follow them from birth until now into the labor market. Um, this is the British birth cohort study of 1970. And we look basically at, you know, if we can construct a measure of overconfidence in adolescence, which we can using um, questions where the participants are asked, you know, how good do you think you are in English? How good do you think you are in maths? And then we actually have some measures of how good they are. And we're able to kind of use the difference between how they assess themselves and how they actually perform on these tests to construct this measure of overconfidence. There again, we show that boys are overconfident. But what we're able to do is then use that measure to look at later life outcomes because we follow these people up until now. Um, age 46. And so what we find is that in their 40s, um, overconfidence explains a significant portion of the gender gap and who ends up in a top job. So a top job here means a managerial kind of, you know, you could think about like CEOs or top jobs, but lots of other jobs could also have, um, you know, managerial or kind of important um, leadership functions. So you can think about even things like judges, police officers, lawyers, um, people working in science fields as well, of course. And so we find that um, this overconfidence um, in adolescence is explaining between five and 10% of the gender gap. And there is a gender gap. So men are more likely at age, in their early 40s, age 42, to be in these top jobs. And overconfidence in adolescence is explaining um, a pretty significant portion of that. I think that's a powerful finding because this is something that's measured in adolescence, but we still see that you know, almost 30 plus years later, it is explaining part of why men are able to reach these um, top jobs. Why do, why do you think the girls in adolescence are not as confident? And is it something to do with the education system or is it something to do with just just society and, and, and girls more, more generally? I mean, have you got any evidence or have you got any judgments that you can make there? Unfortunately, I think it has to do with both um, society and then, of course, our education system reflecting society. So I have another paper where I'm using a longitudinal study of twins who are born in England um, between 1994 and 1996, so a more recent generation. And in that paper, we're basically looking at how boys and girls self-assess their maths ability, but we also know their maths ability, right? So we're actually there kind of looking at a type of overconfidence too. We're looking at how people assess themselves in maths, but we know how good they actually are. And interestingly, in that paper, we also know how the parents assess their children in maths, and we know how the teachers assess the children in maths. And in all across all of those groups, so the boys think they're better at maths than the girls, and actually, even if they have the same exact performance in maths. So boys just think they're better in maths. But teachers also assess the boys better in maths. And I find that the difference is smaller, um, but that's still really interesting. These are the people teaching the kids. They know how good these kids are in maths, yet they still are rating the boys higher, even if a boy and girl have the same 
actual math's prior attainment. Um, and the same is true for the parents. The parents are actually, the difference is much bigger. They assess the boys high, even higher. So the teachers are a little bit closer to reality, but they're still kind of perpetuating um, these stereotypes. And I think that's an important thing to be thinking about. So clearly there is some kind of thing happening in how parents are transmitting stereotypes to the next generation, but teachers are unfortunately also doing this. Mm. And, and you mentioned society as, as, as well. Is that, is that part of the, the, the problem? Obviously we don't know for sure the mechanisms behind all of this, but it does seem like there are some ideas about, you know, there are stereotypes within society about boys being better at maths and maths being viewed as more maths or fields related to mathematics being viewed as more ma masculine um, areas. And so I do think that those kind of society level stereotypes do influence how parents parent and how teachers um, teach. So yeah, unfortunately, I think there is that link there. I, I've worked in co-ed schools and my uh, the last 15 years I, or 17 years, I think I spent in a single sex girls school. So is the evidence suggesting then that perhaps it's better for girls to be taught separately from boys so that you don't get those stereotypes developing from the teachers that you just mentioned there when you've done your study of the twins? Yeah, so I haven't worked on single sex schools myself, but I think there is some evidence, uh, if I remember correctly, that people have looked at single sex schools in England um, and have found those kind of things. That's in single sex schools, girls are more likely to pursue um, STEM subjects at A levels, um, but which could be, a, you know, it could be a the mechanism could be that they don't have the male peers at the point of comparison. So if they're good at science or math, they just pursue it and they don't kind of have to compare themselves to boys in that academic context. It could also be that the teachers are just more encouraging. Of course, they don't have, again, boys in the school to to view as better, even when they might not be. Mm. I mean, my experience was that um, being in a single set school was good. But then when you put the girls next to the boys, the girls then just tended to be incredibly quiet. The boys were able to speak more fluently, appeared to be more articulate, and the girls would just go very, very quiet. So there was almost you know, disadvantage then as they were getting older because they hadn't had that experience in an academic context. Yeah, I mean, I'm not personally sure that that would, that doing single sex education would solve any of these problems. I think you still see, um, unfortunately, that like as you mentioned, people who go to single sex schools might still encounter these kind of um, challenges or under under overconfidence. Um, we also find in that work on the twins that actually having a sibling who's a boy who's very confident is negative for the girls' um, confidence in maths. And so I think you know, even if we were to gender separate everyone at school you can't do that within a family right and how how girls and boys interact in that kind of peer setting um, is also really important and we shouldn't underestimate that so I'm not sure that single-sex education is going to be the solution for all of these um, problems unfortunately. So so what could schools be doing then to manage this male overconfidence factor have you got any suggestions on that? I mean I think it's important to maybe reinforce with that with that study on the twins where we find that teachers are you know, gender biased and basically how they rate um, pupils. I think it's important to highlight that. I don't think people in the teachers are doing this on purpose, right? I think it's something that might just be, like you say, it might be that the male students speak up more in class. And so in their minds, these are the students who are really good at math, even if they're not. Um, so I think, you know, talking about kind of things about unconscious bias, doing trainings about how do you actually mark assessments in a less gender biased way, um, I do think when we talk about the university plans and those kind of things, encouraging 
very high ability, high achieving girls to also have ambitious plans seems like a pretty obvious um, thing that we could do there. And making sure that, you know, at the same time, boys also have realistic plans. You know, in, in that paper, we show that a lot of pupils plan, want to apply to Oxbridge, even when they realistically, it's not, it's not going to happen because they're very low performers. And so, you know, talking to people early on and to, to people's early on about what are realistic plans and helping people make, you know, ambitious for them, but still realistic plans um, seems like a good idea. What about in terms of employers? I mean, in your paper that you published the conversation recently, you talked about employers should be looking at their recruitment and their promotion strategies because of this um, overconfidence factor. Yeah. So in that paper, I mean, one of the things we can't unfortunately really look at because it's not data from one specific firm. Um, but it is interesting to think about the time at which people decide to put themselves forward for promotion. So once they're already in the firm, we do know from other academic work that men do that a lot earlier. So they immediately want to apply for promotion, maybe when they're you know even relatively new in a role. Um, and I think you know managers being aware of this and at the same time encouraging women maybe to apply earlier than they would. So there's some research that shows that you know women will only apply to jobs um, once they meet every single formal criteria, but that's not the case um, for men. So really encouraging, again, women early on to try and apply for promotion. At the recruitment level, I think it's a little bit more challenging, but trying to come up with questions that maybe trying and can kind of sort or help us better understand, you know, are people overconfident or do they actually have the skills um, that we're looking for? Um, but that's very challenging. I think, you know, obviously I think HR professionals can probably come up with ways to do this, but trying to think about how could we screen for overconfidence probably seems like a good idea. Of course, in some areas, maybe you want overconfident workers. If you're working in sales, you could imagine you really want to have overconfident people. So I don't think this should be like a blanket thing that all employers um, need to be thinking about at the recruitment stage. But in terms of the gender inequality within firms, I think at the promotion level, thinking about when people apply and helping um, yeah, basically helping women apply sooner would probably be a good policy. Have you done any research or read any research? Because it's just sort of coming into my mind about in on interview panels about the length of time that men will speak in an interview situation and the number that the amount of time that a woman would speak. And there's a real difference, isn't there? There's a gender gap there as well. Is that correct? I sh I'm sure there is. I actually don't know that um, <laughs> research. Some employers do do tests at the beginning of um, recruitment. You can think about some of the big accounting firms or consultant firms. And then you can ask people how they think they did on that test. You can have some kind of overconfidence measure. But sure, measuring how long people speak about different topics um, is potentially also a way to try and understand what do they actually know about the topic um, versus... What do they think they know? Yeah. yeah. And the other thing I wanted to ask you, obviously, we're talking here about England. Um, is this just sort of an English British phenomenon? Yeah, so I have done another paper where, which I mentioned, which is using PISA data to look at overclaiming. So this is this idea um, on PISA in 2012. Uh, and there I should say we're only looking at English language countries. Um, the kids were asked to list there's 16 mathematical concepts and they need to say how familiar they are with them. So you could say, I've never heard of it, or you could say, I'm very familiar. Three of those concepts were fake. So they were made to sound like they were real mathematical concepts. So one of them, for example, subjunctive scaling. Sounds like it could be a real mathematical concept. It's obviously not. But um, what we look at in that paper is the, is the pupils who say that they're experts in these three fake concepts because they don't exist. But if you say you're an expert, clearly you're overclaiming knowledge. 
Um, and in that, we then can rank the countries. And we find, maybe unsurprisingly for listeners, that the US and Canada rank the highest on this overclaiming scale. England is about middle of the pack. And then we have Australia and New Zealand are um, more towards the bottom. Um, and so I think, you know, this isn't just a phenomenon. Now, obviously, that's all Anglophone countries. Clearly, this is something um, that seems to be happening. And there, I should say, we also find that boys are much more likely to overclaim knowledge and actually pupils from higher socioeconomic backgrounds as well. Um, so clearly, this isn't just a phenomenon that's limited to England. Um, most of the research that I've done is on OECD countries and specifically on um, Anglophone countries. But I do think when you talk to people about this research, you know, I've talked to people from Latin America or from other European countries, um, it resonates with them a lot, which makes me think that this is not just a phenomenon um, in the countries where we're uh, currently working. So I do think this is something, but that definitely needs more research to understand what that, what are the implications then in those labor markets. Okay, so we've almost come to the end of our, uh, our conversation. If I were to come and talk to you in about 10 years and we were to have this same discussion, um, do you think there'll be any improvement in terms of the gender gap in top jobs or any improvement just generally about you know women and their lack of confidence and compared to the, the men and their overconfidence? Is it still a, will it still be a man's world? <laughs> I mean, I hope it won't still be in 10 years. I'm optimistic. Um, I do think this stuff is changing over time, although I do have to say, having worked with now people born in 1970, 1990, and I'm doing some work now with people born in 2000, and that's some of the PISA students that I mentioned as well, they're born around 2000. Unfortunately, in all of those kind of cohorts, we still see this gender gap. Um, and 2000 is now already a while ago. Um, but yeah, I think those are going to be the people, you know, that will be in the labor market in 10 years, kind of trying to reach top jobs, maybe reaching them. Um, and given that we saw in adolescence that they still had these gender gaps in overconfidence, that makes me a little pessimistic. I do think that at least there's more awareness around this and institutional level change is happening. Um, so hopefully the effects will be smaller. I think we have to be optimistic, even though the evidence shows that these, this is still a problem for that generation. Nikki, can I say a huge thank you for, for coming and, and joining us and talking with us today? There are so many more things that, that we could chat about, but at least this has got uh, the ball rolling for some of our listeners. Thank you ever so much. Thank you for having me, Susan. Thank you. You've been listening to the Independent Teacher Podcast. If you like listening to this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star rating either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts.